You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. This is going to be a two-part series that I'm doing. And the topic is the atonement. I, uh, this was a real struggle. This is something I have been, I've been fighting through for really ever since I became a Christian. Because uh, I had a hard time understanding how the, the death of Christ on a cross was effective in enabling me to have a full relationship with him. And how that happened, how that works, and what's going on with that. And the interesting thing was the more I studied, I came to realize there's not a whole lot written about it. There's pieces here and there's pieces there, but to say, who, who's really writing a lot about it? There's not a whole lot. And, uh, you know, I, I went along with just have faith, and, and please do not get this wrong. I had faith. I knew where I was. I just didn't get it. I was in, in this mystery, some might say a cloud, that my brain was in, that's not necessarily a bad thing. God actually likes us to push through mystery because he wants in this age all mystery to be revealed to us. And so this mystery is a relational thing. So we're talking to one another as we have mystery. But it wouldn't go away. And the church's reliance on penal substitution, that is, Jesus took my place and absorbed my punishment, and now everything's fine, it just seemed so flawed to me. It didn't seem to answer my question at all. You know, there's so many other ways the atonement's described in the Bible. It's, it's got ransom, has Christ victory, it's got cleansing, and then it's got the images of Passover and of sacrifice. And I didn't see where that fell into that category. And so I didn't really need one soul explanation of the atonement, but I did need a nexus of what, how all these came together. And that for me was the real struggle. So today, we're going to start that process and look at this. And I wanted to look at it, though, from the, the, the perspective of covenant. You see, God took human f- flesh to be our high priest, restoring and completing the, the relationship of love, mercy, and compassion. And in doing, doing so, all these different expressions and imagery of atonement come into play, all through, through a covenantal relationship. And so we're going to look at how atonement developed in the church first, and some is really, really good. And some, I think, is somewhat questionable. But then we're going to really look at the covenant and see how that works. And I want the covenant, though, to bring in the Old Testament, too. So we see this continuance from the beginning all the way through of this process of atonement through Christ. And so too many stories have this, it's creation, the fall, then it leapfrogs to Jesus, end time. And, and all this other wonderful part seems to be left out of the entire story, everywhere I read. And I, I want that to be included. So that'll be 
part of what we're going to be looking at. So today is a little bit more than nuts and bolts, and next week will be a lot more of what that really means to you. So, so today we're looking under the hood, tomorrow we get to drive the car. <laughs> now, I'm gonna start with Irenaeus. He was, he, he was one of the first people to write a, a, uh, a real framework of the central ideas of the Christian faith. He, he came about about 100 years just within 100 years of the apostolic age. And his model was recapitulation. I can't say that three times. Um, And it centers on Christ's identity in humanity and in in the incarnation. So this summing up into himself of all humanity that was lost in, in Adam, our identity as imagery of God, is recovered through him. One of his favorite passages is actually from Ephesians 2. And it says, um, four through eight, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Christ through incarnation became human so we might become identified with him in his resurrection in new life. In other words, He became like us so we could become like him. That's language we still hear today. This this is a good teaching. I'm not kicking this out, by the way. Um, So that as Christ died, we die with him. As Christ is risen, we rise with him. And so humanity shares in the works of Christ. Then another theologian, Gustav Alden, he reintroduces the Orthodox tradition of Christus Victor, that is, Jesus the Victor. In this model, he takes on the role of the divine kinsman, and he has this cosmic battle against evil, against the darkness, and that Jesus comes out as victor. And in that role, also as divine kinsmen, we come out of this as the ransom paid and we've been taken out of slavery. The slavery to sin. That Jesus has overcome the power of sin and the kingdom of God has now been restored on earth. And this is part of this. Uh, His favorite two verses are Romans 8.37 Now, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, that we share in the role of conqueror. His other favorite one is in Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them by the cross. And that takes into mind of when a, a... army had defeated their enemy, they would parade them through the town and they would just be, they would ridicule them and make fun of them. That's what he said he's done to the evil one. And so 
that's an aspect of our atonement. So we've got this restoration, recapitulation. We have this victory of Jesus. We have all these, there are a lot of different things. I just, I really, and by the way, this last, that last one, when I was taking VI, I heard a lot of vineyard pastors really talking about this one. That, that was really, really popular. Then we come into the first century, uh, and that's when you see Anselm. He uh, had the theory of satisfaction. This is where some things changed. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury from uh, 1093 to 1109, and he redefined sin as offending the honor of God as a feudal overlord. And he said that forgiveness out of, com- out of compassion without satisfaction or punishment is impossible. His exact quote is, it is not fitting for God to pass over anything in his kingdom undercharged. It is therefore not proper for God thus to pass over sin unpunished. That honor, and he talks a lot about the, God must have be restored to his honor, has been taken away from God and must be repaid by our sins. And punishment, it must, he says the punishment is necessary for God to justify himself. So this view tends to equate salvation with the remission of debt, minimizing the love in, of God and forgiveness and treating it as a rational cause rather than a relationship. Grace is never free, and, it's tra- and it is, must be earned by someone, and it can be transferred by someone. And this was the Catholic position for decades, and to a large degree it still is. Then came Martin Luther, and, and then from there John Calvin, which is part of the Reformation. And they moved satisfaction to the, what's now called penal substitution. And grace became free and non-transferable. Grace of God became free. It was not something earned, and it flowed from God. But the balance of Anselm's general thought remained, actually became strengthened. And partly people believe it's because Western Europe in the medieval time was a a rather uh, brutal, they, they had executions for all minor offenses. Any minor offense was considered sedition against the king. And you and off with your heads. So when you hear people make the joke, off with your head for some menial thing, that really happened. So now Calvin does introduce God's love, but he doesn't change his position on this. And I want to address that more because penal substitution is the predominant model of atonement in the evangelical church. And I think it's really important to look at it. Its principle is that law must be upheld in a judicial setting. And God, as judge, cannot and may not ignore law-breaking. Justice must be done and a penalty must be extracted. Concurrent with this idea is is that in a criminal setting, a person can legally bear someone else's penalty. Now, this is plausible in civil court, where we have third-party insurance companies paying things, or we can also have a benefactor. But in criminal court, this is unheard of in, in most cases. That would require that you intentionally punish an innocent person and then declare the guilty person innocent. And 
if the guilty person is declared innocent, there's no need for punishment. So, it, it, you know, the Bible does not contradict itself. Theologians do. And so that's where there's sometimes a problem is. However, however, if God does indeed rewrite the definition of justice and of punishment through his redemptive acts, he doesn't do it in a way that penal substitution supposes. If it's allowed that God could sovereignly adapt the inalienable cosmic law, as they put it, that's, that's the exact words that, that they use, in his penal sense, might he choose to do it in a different way? Might he have unconditional forgiveness like the prodigal son? Is it, and it, this is what I think James has in mind. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone, will, will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Perhaps it's less the case that there must be punishment as there must be mercy. God, does God command man also to demand punishment? Does God command us to act in a similar fashion that a price must be paid? You know, Matthew 18 is one of, my, one of those great parables of forgiveness. And it starts, though, with in uh, chapter 18, when Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? I love Peter. What is my minimum requirement? <laughs> Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times. And if you continue in the passage, this becomes a parable about a king who... And, and an unforgiving servant. The king forgives the servant. The servant then is unforgiving. And then the king goes crazy and says, what in the world is going on? You, you expected me to forgive you, but you won't forgive anyone else. And it's about forgiveness. If the doctrine of penal substitution, I, might, I want to add one last thing on Anselm. Almost all of his is about philosophy. There's, very, there's virtually no biblical quotation at all in his theories of satisfaction. It, and he was, a, he was a philosopher. And I find it interesting that there are very few biblical verses that are ever used to ever justify penal substitution. Unless you've already made the decision that penal substitution is the way, then you read it into the verses. Because... That's the only, so to say if Jesus died for my sins, it's a huge leap then to say he took my place in doing so and that now I'm forgiven. For my sins could be on account of my sins, because of my sins, in, lieu, in, in a whole lot of different things that for my sins could be. But if you already have the preconceived notion of penal substitution, then it's going to say he did it instead of me for my sins. And it, 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 it doesn't have to necessarily follow that. But, it, but the other part, though, is Scripture speaks of sacrifice, ransom, paying a price, Passover. None of these have anything to do with, with substitution. There's no substitute of the ransom. 
There's no substitute in any of those other, uh, other stories. As a matter of fact, I'm to share in his life, death, and resurrection. If he took my place, there's no point in me saying I'm sharing. And so that's why I have trouble with that particular area. And, and so I want to review the atonement with, with the purposes and plans of his, all of his people. I want to see how Israel fits into the equation also. Israel's included, and thus the, the Torah becomes important. We cannot ignore the basic directives that are under the law of God, same as under Jesus. Love your God with all your heart and all your soul. And, and love your neighbor as yourself. Torah. We're the same family tree. We're just grafted in. As it says in Romans 11, it says, if part of the dough offered as fruit, first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have broken off, and you, the wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself superior to those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, the root supports you. You then say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For God did not spare the natural branches. He will not spare you either. We are attached to, most of, the, most of the time in the New Testament, the question is where were we attached, if you remember. They talk about the Judaizers that said that you had to be circumcised. They wanted to attach low on the tree. And, and that's, the, that's a big part of the argument. It was never a question of whether Ju Judaism was valid and that Torah wasn't, was wonderful. You know, the idea that the relationship between Israel and God, into which Jesus entered, by the way, performs no explanatory role in the atonement cannot be valid. It can't be. It does more than just aid in contrasting the new and the old as a negative backdrop to make the new shine forth. It, does, it also does more than provide the treasure chest of stories and images and metaphors to help illustrate Jesus' work. This can only force the theories of atonement to be ahistorical and Israel forgotten, or unfortunately, anti-Judaism, expressing law versus grace, faith versus works, inefficiency of Torah versus faith, versus Jesus. You have to understand that Torah is so much more than law. It's not judicial at all. It's very relational, extremely relational. It's like the law of science or law of nature. It's how things are to be lived. Not traffic cop looking to give tickets. It's nothing like that. It's the embodiment of the living God through word, gifted to Israel. And God personified is Messiah, the word made flesh, that word. And so God speaks in and through the books of law, and it's really very, very rich and really wonderful. I, we really have to understand Torah is, is, is amazing. 
quite frankly. And I was raised in a faith that kind of cast the Old Testament completely out. Never read it in church. You read a gospel and an epistle. We didn't read Old Testament. And we, we were losing so much. So I, I, the one place that the two of them agree is covenant. One of the people I, was, I, I read from, I should add this, as this was going on, the Lord just gave me names, people I don't know. And I, and I thought, well, who is this guy? And I'd, I'd ask people, do you know who this guy is? No. And so I Googled him. And one of them is Larry Shelton. Well, he's actually, it's R. Larry Shelton. I'd never heard of him. Well, he's quite a biblical scholar, and he's, he writes a lot about the covenant, mostly in Methodist uh, communities. He was trained at Asbury. He was a professor at Fuller Seminary. And the Lord just gave me this name, Larry Shelton. Well, this book he has called Cross and Covenant is really quite good. I read N.T. Wright, three of his books. Uh, and Dr. Bernhope, he has a really good book. I, I, tons of these people I was reading. Well, here's what he advocates. An embracing integrative motif of covenant renewal for a, a biblical concept of atonement. Wasn't that nice? You ever got that? <laughs> what he's saying is we have to integrate the old and the new and make that flow into our picture of atonement. We can't suddenly just chop one off and say this was inefficient so it doesn't matter. That's not the way it worked. It continued. Jesus was born into Judaism for a reason. So I, I, here's another thing he writes. It's not quite as legalism. It says, the key issue and divine objective in the biblical teaching on salvation is the restoration of covenant fellowship, not simply renewal, removal of guilt. The disposition of guilt and sin is part of the salvation process, but it's not the entire issue. Covenant fellowship with God is the goal for which humanity was created and which was lost as a result of fallenness. The key question for all atonement theories, then, is how this alienation from God can be overcome and the covenant relationship restored. A spiritual thread runs through both Testaments, which concludes with Christ's revelation in the last phase of God's faithfulness to his covenant commitments of salvation to Israel and through that nation, the entire world. I do want to mention one thing about the elect before I go much further. And the reason is there's a lot of churches that are into universalism and things like this because, see, the covenant is offered to everyone. The completed work of the covenant has been completed. So everyone has been forgiven. Everyone has. But we must accept the covenant to, to, to benefit from, the, from all the promises of the covenant. So we saw that in the Hebraic covenant with circumcision. We saw this in the Mosaic covenant. I don't know if you remember, they had the, the 12 pillars, had a bull, and then they all declared together, we will serve our God. And then we individually come into covenant as we accept Christ. So when you accepted Christ, you weren't then forgiven. Forgiveness had already been done. Forgiveness happened by Christ being incarnated into humanity to begin the covenant process. You just need to accept it and get on that train that's already moving. 
And so it's a very different, we've been always told because of the penal substitution, we have to do it the other way first. First you have to say, I'm sorry, before he, get, he forgives you, but he's already forgiven you. But you don't get the benefit until you step into it. And I just think that's wonderful. I, that's the reason I love Colossians 2.11. Because it, it, that really pulls the old and new together. It says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So we see that we died, all of our flesh has been circumcised, if you will. We died in our flesh and are raised again, newborn in Christ, a new creation. And so he uses the circumcision to tie us that this is covenant. This is not an arbitrary judicial contract. And I, and he, I like how he connected to the cutting of covenant. Because that's, that's what they called covenant. They, they, they didn't say, I, I enter into a covenant. They said, I, I, we cut into covenant. So for a Jew, the proper context for Torah was to be in Torah. That's how they described it. I am in Torah. That means I'm walking with God. And it's, if you read Deuteronomy, it's really beautiful how it's in there. I'm going to do uh, chapter 6, 5 through 8. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I, that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Verse 7. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Verse 8. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Torah became part of their body. Torah was etched into them. The way of life, God's word, was, became part of them. Amazing how that, we, 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 it wasn't a th at a distance. Torah was very deep in them. So they were in Torah walking with God, and we are in Christ, walking in spirit, because the spirit of God, the living representative of God, the actual represent, true representation of God lives in us. The law, I'm sorry, missed that one. But any and all views of the atonement have to center on, surround the cross. Within the atonement covenant is a covenant of sacrifice, and that functions as the ratifications of, of the covenant from the covenant maker. We have to understand, God is the covenant maker. God and is the one that initiates all covenant. And so the two most prominent covenants involve blood. That would be the circumcision and the Passover lamb. In both of them, the covenant was sealed seeking the redemption of the life of Israel and its seed from generation to generation. The blood of the Passover was of significance in the renewal of the establishment of the covenant through the mighty acts of redemption. So every covenant had essentially three parts. You have the, to cut. That's used 86 times, by the way, in the Old Testament. To cut into covenant. And blood was always part of the covenant bond. Then you have to eat or give to eat. And there, the there was a covenant meal from Melchizedek to Sinai to the Last Supper. And, the, and as you 
when in the, this covenant meal, you broke bread and you shared it. You broke it and you served. That's how the covenant meal was. And then there was a the concept of chaining or binding, and the word that actually came from is oath. And that was the promises of the co covenant. So all the covenants have promises. And so God himself steps into the place of, of the sacrifice required in making the covenant and offers himself in Jesus as a sacrifice, sacrificial lamb. In Hebrews 9 and verse 15, it clearly makes that comment. Jesus is the covenant sacrifice. But it goes on, and we see now that Jesus' role was as high priest of humanity. And he brought all of humanity into covenant with him to the Father. So we have human Jesus having covenant relationship with God the Father. And so, because he's God, he actually will mediate both sides of the covenant, but primarily he'll, he'll mediate it as human on the right hand of the Father, mediating the covenant on human, humanity's behalf. And then you look at verse 24, it says, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to, get to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The Last Supper is expressly spoken of the new covenant in my blood. And we can't miss the covenant picture in, in that. I, I, I've got two different I have both Mark and Matthew. And it says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and while... He, while he gave thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples, saying, take this, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my cup of the, of the this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. Look at the footnote there, though, if it's printed. It's not printed. Okay. <laughs> the footnote says, early manuscripts say new covenant. Then in Matthew, it's very much the same. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and saying, take and eat, this is my body. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the NIV has the exact same footnote. And there's another footnote that says, some say, new and everlasting covenant. This is covenant. We come to Christ in atonement through covenant. The significance of the incarnation and representative of humanity in Christ forever cut in our flesh. That we totally share with Christ. This means that at the incarnation of Christ, that when Jesus is born, the atonement begins. 
And so we, got, we can't miss this because so many times I hear, I hear this. Christ was born on Christmas so that he would die later. And they overlook the bringing in of the kingdom that he defeats over and over. Read Mark. And it says, quickly, suddenly, he shows the speed at which he's overcoming sicknesses, illnesses, leading to this point. And so, Jesus didn't enter the air, he didn't take our place on the cross. He came for that us to share with him the cross itself. The resurrection of the new life and the death to our old self. So we, we see the importance of covenant being situated in Passover, not atonement, the, the day of atonement. Which would, the day of atonement would seem more logical where the overriding thing was about forgiveness of sin. It's not. And I think something else we need to know. In Jewish tradition, a sacrifice was not performed to cause anything. Instead, the sacrifice was in recognition of what had already happened. Either the blessing or God's word, and they had a sacrifice. So it's, it's, the, the mercy and blessing of God was not a result of sacrifice, but the sacrifice bore witness to the provisions of God. The sacrifice came after the blessing, not to, not to receive it. It came after for the forgiveness given, not to gain forgiveness. We have to understand that. So the forgiveness came before the sacrifice. We were forgiven when Christ became human. And the offer of covenant for all of mankind came into play. That's an amazing thing to think about. And so, you know, one of the important verses to look at the Passover time, we're getting near the end here, is Exodus 2. And I think we have to look at this real, real quick. Is uh, Exodus 2, 23 and 25, through 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And a cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The deliverance from Egypt in God's revelation in Sinai must be, in, must be interpreted in the, through the light of Genesis. And so, the, so when we see Genesis, we see the Passover. And as we see Passover... We see the new covenant in Christ. So we sometimes, to really understand the new covenant in Christ, we have to look over our shoulder to the Passover. And we see all those symbols of atonement there, just as we see them in the new, the new covenant. We see the gathering to himself as a form of new nation, we see Christ this victor when he defeats 10 different Egyptian gods in those curses. So many people forget that those curses were actually spiritual warfare. We see that he brings them into 
his own, and then does what? Dwells with them. That the victor instead dwells in the camp of, of the people he brought out. And so we see this covenant of the Passover in our covenant today. The, I just find it so much more rich. When I start to look at now the covenant this way, the way I look at the incarnation has changed so much. The way I look at communion is staggeringly different. How I look at what happened at the cross is now so different. And I understand now why, as human, if it's a covenant sacrifice, and he's our representative of humanity, I now share in that, and that makes sense. I see the love of God not in conflict with the Father, that, that it almost seems to imply by, by the, the penal substitution, that we have the wrath of God can only be appeased by the death of his own son, which then splits the Trinity. The Trinity, and it doesn't make sense. It's, you know, I look at the prodigal son, and I see the father waiting for his return. So he could restore him in love and mercy. And that's maybe the most famous parable of the New Testament. It's not judicial. It's not anger. It's not punishment. It's family. And it's, not, it's told by a God who came to heal his family. The incarnation expresses God before his death. I just think that's so beautiful. Now, in part two, it'll, a lot of this will make a little bit more sense, I hope. If you're, a little, if you're in the weeds, that's okay. Because I've been in weeds for a year. It, I'm trying to explain it the best I can by getting all the pieces in. But then we're, next week, we're going to look at uh, directly how each piece of these that we saw of the covenant picture, all those descriptions you see in the Bible, cleansing. Cleansing is a little bit different than, than being forgiven. That's why it's sprinkled with blood. And there's a whole lot of things that are in this covenant package that make the richness of what Jesus did so much more glory. And how our own birth is fundamentally different because before Christ ever came into the world, we were already forgiven. What we screw up did not come as a surprise to God. And what you screw up tomorrow won't come up as a surprise to him either. But what was surprising to me was the level of relationship, both of the Old Testament and the New Testament, of God with his people. It's called the, the people of God is Israel. The God of Israel is what he's called. And that how he now grafts us in that we're now the people of God. And he's the God of, our, of this people. And so I, I hope that as we get into next week, and if you can't make it, make sure you tape it, because this one, that you'll really see a deeper and more fullness in this. Now, a, now I know a lot of you right now are saying to yourself, Nope, Chuck's wrong. I, I'm not going to argue with you. If, if you have the fullness of your faith 
in your current treatment of atonement, I don't want to change you, but if I can somehow make it broader and fuller, that's all I can ask for. But under an umbrella of covenant, everything fits. And it makes, it, it's consistent with the rest of the Bible. And it makes Passover make sense of why it happened on Passover. And then we celebrate 50 days later is the giving of the law. God's word, his heart, his personality, his character is written and given to the people. And then we celebrate today that the Holy Spirit came to make us, make us arcs of the covenant. To make us the indwelling place of God. And so that when they walked in Torah, we walk in Christ and Christ in us. And I just think that the richness of this is so wonderful. So that's what I have for the day. I do want to close with a prayer. As, so as the worship team starts to gather, before I do that, I just really want you to know, we have a couple of chairs on either side. This is a ch church that loves to pray. Anyone who would like a prayer request, feel free to grab a chair. If you want to pray or be prayed, grab a mask. If you want to pray for someone, have a mask handy. No laying on of hands. And if you feel more comfortable to pray for someone by pulling a chair over, that's fine. But keep a distance. Let's be safe. But let's be loving. So, Father, I just want to pray. I hope that some parts of your heart were revealed today. I ask, Lord, that the richness of knowing you keeps expanding and expanding. I think the model of the universe is kind of the way you are. It keeps expanding and you keep revealing yourself like an expanding universe. I thank you, Lord, for this. I thank you for coming to me and, and helping me, touching me. And I thank you that you'll touch every single person here. You say you want all mysteries revealed. We ask you, Lord, allow us to have faith so, because it's our faith and humility to you that releases these mysteries. We thank you, Lord, for this entire church family how you speak through each and every one of them. And through the people that are at home, you speak to us all the time, the richness of God's truth. We ask that you come among us as we sing this final hymn. And we feel the richness of your joy and of your love in us, for us. And that going to the cross was your joy to bring your people into complete relationship again the fullness of the humanity in you. So we thank you for this, Jesus. And we thank you, Father, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for as a unified triune God, your people can come back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.